So as you may have gathered, the theme today is working with judgments. <laughs> and I want to uh, really continue some of where we were last week and um, actually speak fairly briefly. I think the kind of discussion that we've had about just now about particular examples of judgment, whether about one's practice or having judgmental thoughts that, that you, your name again was? Sarah. That Sarah gave or some of, the, some of the other examples, I think can give us, um, can really be meaningful to our, our group because they're very everyday, they're very ordinary, and we can see some ways of working with them. So what I'd like to do is talk on the brief side and leave a significant amount of time for us to share some of what we found. What I want to do then is to review briefly some of the um, area that we explored last time and bring it in a few areas that were not mentioned last time that would sort of take it a little bit further. And those who want to um, go yet further in detail, there is the day long on March 31st, and then people who've been to the day long would have the option of doing a follow-up group that would happen. Actually, it happens at my house in Berkeley about once a month, and that'll start about 10 days after the day long. And it's, it's on a Donna basis, and it's, you know, it's uh, your choice if you want to do that. But uh, as I mentioned last time, uh, doing this work with what we're calling judgments can be a very powerful transformative practice. As I was saying in response to one of the first questions, I'm using judgments here in a specific way. Again, in the everyday usage of the term judgments, we use the term in a variety of ways. Uh, you know, it's sometimes used quite neutrally as simply a statement of noticing something. You know, it was my judgment that uh, the rain was good yesterday. You know, and we, we uh, sometimes talk about aesthetic judgment, and it doesn't have that sense of reactivity that we're particularly looking at, or the judgment of the, it was the judgment of the uh, investigating body that this was the case. It could be used in a quite neutral way. And the kind of judgment that uh, we're particularly focusing on here is the kind that has a kind of a charge, a reactivity, uh, an edge to it. There's some, uh, some way that typically the mind has either a very strong uh, reaching after something and grasping, or a kind of pushing away, uh, an aversion. And I'm particularly focusing on the aversive aspect of judgments. I think that, and they're the kinds of judgments that probably um, come to our attention more readily. I believe that there are the positive kind of judgments, and they could come in terms of really uh, elevating someone to be this wonderful, amazing person, there could, it could be a kind of judgment that has more of the grasping energy. It's a little more subtle, isn't it? The, the aversive uh, judgment is right in our face, and it's right there, and we notice it. And, uh, but I think that were we taking you know, 10 weeks or 15 weeks on the theme, we would want to be devoting some time to the positive judgments. But here today, I think this will probably be the, the, um, the second and last of the work with judgments, at least for a while. Um, we're focusing on the kind that have the reactivity. What's interesting about judgments is that there is that cognitive content that we talked about earlier, uh, and it often has a link with truth. And that's where 
As I mentioned last time, there's a hook. Judgments hook us because they seem to speak the truth. You know, your comment about, uh, oh, I'm not really doing so well in meditation, I'm just going around in circles. It has a kind of a hook of truth, which is the observation that there's a certain commonality to what's been happening. And it's that quality of truth which often locks us into judgments. And the judgments, as we were mentioning last time, tend to get hooked into a lot of unconscious material and start us spinning around. So we could say that the kind of negative judgment that we're focusing on is an observation linked with an emotional sledgehammer. It's a, uh, and our work is to disentangle the two. Our work is to, in a way, see where there's intelligence and energy in the judgment, see where there's reactivity, preserve the intelligence and energy, as in your example, and leave the reactivity to compost in the earth. (laughs) Basically, leave it behind. And what we do in that way is we don't simply judge the judgment, which is a very strong tendency. And I actually, to be honest, I hear it in Dharma talks from time to time. I hear it from, from others. I, I, read, I read about that. I go to, sometimes go to workshops, and I, I find that attitude at times. We should just get rid of judgments. And I think there is a time, definitely, just to say judgments you and I have to be apart for a while, <laughs> you know, or something like that, where we set a boundary. And I think that can be skillful in the moment. But in the long run, if we judge the judgment and get, simply try to get rid of it, first of all, it's probably not going to work that well. But we also can't access the intelligence and the energy of the judgment. So in the long run, this kind of approach permits us to take what was initially a harsh, reactive judgment towards self or other and move towards, mm, basically move towards discernment and intelligence connected with compassionate action. And the judgment transformed can be compassionate action based on discernment towards self and other. So judgments are this very, very intense energy that take us into can take us into profound transformation. And they, when we work with them, they can transform how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others <coughs> at work and in intimate relationships, because getting lost in judgments and not being able to deal with the underlying issues in ourselves or in the situation is one of the ways that we just get locked into conflict interpersonally, at work, in the world. And so this transformative work with judgment can have, I think, a very profound effect personally, interpersonally, and socially. I also want to mention that there's something I didn't mention last time in so much depth, that there is a very significant cultural dimension related to judgments. And I was reminded of this uh, just a few days ago when a friend sent um, a reference to a a video on YouTube. This is my first YouTube reference in a Dharma talk. (laughs) And 
the reference was to an experiment that was done um, by a young African-American teenager, 17 years old, and she basically replicated the, a version of the experiment that was done by Dr. Kenneth Clark in the, 19, in the early 1950s. Some of you may know that experiment in which Dr. Clark, who I believe was at, um, I believe he was at Harvard University, I'm not, I'm not sure, and he did an experiment where he gave young African-American kids black dolls and white dolls and asked them which they preferred. They overwhelmingly preferred white dolls. And the study, it was a fairly rigorous research study, was one of the major pieces of supporting evidence that led to the 1954 Supreme Court decision to uh, outlaw segregated schools. It was a very significant study. A young woman, 17 years old, African-American woman, did a version of the study. It was, it was not a research study, but it was more a film that she did where she more or less did the same thing with young African-American kids like last year. Sadly, very sadly, she found the same results. And some of the most poignant moments that I saw in watching this was one that really stayed with me. A young African-American girl, probably four or five years old, was shown the two dolls. She was asked, which is the good doll? She held up the white doll. Which is the bad doll? She held up, she held up the black doll. Which is more like you? Question asked right after the question about the, um, which is the bad doll? Which is more like you? She held up the black doll. That's heartbreaking, right? And it shows how pervasive it is. And it, that quality of judgment, you know, is there on the level of race and ethnicity. It's there in terms of gender. It's, it's there in terms of a number of different uh, qualities, whether it's sexual orientation or disability or age or all sorts of things. And so it's important to see that those judgments are not just personal and they're not just it's not in, in a way the work on judgments is not just a personal responsibility it's also as it were a co community or social responsibility because we know that those judgments are out there and so our own work on judgments intersects in that way with a social response and it's uh, it also shows some of the depth that the judgment work demands doesn't it really it, this is very, very deep material, and so we, when we go into this territory, we, um, we go into very uh, hard, but it's workable territory. That's, that's, that's what I found. So I'll mention, last time I mentioned four ways of working with judgment, and I'll just briefly repeat those. And they're, in a way, um, part of a set of tools to work with judgments. And the first was mindfulness. The first is simply taking an inventory, and this is something that we have to continually do, is just noticing when their judgment's present. Making the inventory, noticing what's there, using mindfulness to 
see how many judgments there are. And as we go further, using mindfulness to actually study the very nature of the experience of judgment. So it's not just to notice, oh, there's a judgment, but as we go more deeply in the mindfulness, it's to actually say, oh, there's a judgment happening. Let me see what that's like. What is actually the nature of a judgment? Let me study it. Let me see the way it manifests in my thoughts. Let me see the way it manifests in my body, in my emotions. That's the first general tool, and it's it's a crucial tool. It's the main tool we develop in our meditation practice. It's to notice when it's there and to notice what our experience is. A second approach or method of working with judgment is to particularly look at the most pervasive patterns involving judgment. If we, as we deepen in our um, mindfulness, as we deepen in our investigation of judgments, we start to notice that uh, they're not happening randomly, but that there are certain patterns which keep repeating. And I mentioned, um, I mentioned last time my own example of being in a work situation with a person in authority who I thought, um, and many others thought as well, um, didn't listen to me. I would say something and he would just change the subject. And remember, some of you remember that story. And I had to meet with him regularly. <laughs> and his pattern did not seem to be shifting. <laughs> in other words, I had that experience a lot and judgment came up, you know, and there were ways to try to respond to it in terms of the organization and interpersonally. But I, there was also a chance to actually study personally. Because I think in the long term, and this is really the approach that I have found myself very called to, is that the long-term transformative work can involve both inner work and outer action. You know, that it can, inv- and, and there's something to me very appealing about doing both, not just doing one, and doing both. But the, in this case, I was, I was more emphasizing the inner work of just knowing that I was in a situation where the same patterns in me were coming up repetitively and I could study them. I could study in more detail. Okay. You know, and some of it's just sort of scoping out the territory. And some of us actually probably, you might sit there and say, I have studied my reactive patterns for years. I know them quite well. <laughs> and there's always room for further depth, of course. Uh, but it's to really, uh, it's almost to make a research project of the ways that we lose it. And it may, it may sound unpleasant. And it is sometimes unpleasant, but it's really, it's when we do that, our practice starts accelerating. And there's a lot of growth that happens. So it's really, so the second area is to really study closely our pervasive patterns, to start, start getting a sense, oh, isn't, this is kind of like last week. You know, let me look at it. Oh, there, you know, maybe like you, it's around, oh, I seem to be most reactive when someone doesn't listen to me. Or I seem to be most reactive when someone gives me unsolicited advice. Or I seem to be most judgmental when I don't have reciprocity. Or when someone makes assumptions about me or something like that. And to really study those really, really closely. That's the second whole area. A third area is to 
bring in some quality of the heart. And it really is, I could say, of the heart, and in some ways to bring in some way of working in a different way. But I want to particularly focus on, in Buddhist practice, we have the resources of loving-kindness, of compassion, of working with gratitude, and so forth. And there's a way in which I have found that some bringing forth of the heart in a, almost like a healed way is really important work if we're doing sustained work with judgments. It need, it, in, in the people I've worked with over the last few years who've done really deep work with judgments, there's a tendency sometimes when we look really closely at judgments, you really study your patterns closely, it can be overwhelming, basically. It can be a lot. And we need the counterbalance, as it were, of the practices that bring the heart out. You know, it could be loving kindness, it could be compassion, you know, it probably could, it could be music, it could be really being connected with nature, it could be singing in a choir, it could be all sorts of things. But something that, in a way, gives us a different energy at the same time that we're really looking closely at the judgments. It could also be really emphasizing the in a sense, a different way of seeing than the judgment. It could be emphasizing the wisdom dimension or interdependence, something that takes us into a different way of being. You know, if there's a way that you know yourself, well, here, here's how I am when I'm wise and clear seeing, and to give that energy. In other words, to really, as it were, the judgments tend to reflect the conditioned old patterns. We need to give energy to the newly emerging patterns as well. That's, that's more or less what I'm saying here. And I'm particularly focusing on the heart practices because the judgment work, a lot of it is the mindfulness and the seeing. And so it's, it's an important balance. And then last, the last practice that I mentioned last time is a more advanced practice of inquiry. And I describe my own practice over a several-year period of doing deeper inquiry into judgments where I tuned in to what was, as it were, beneath the words. I did this by this technique. We sometimes call it a dropping down technique of being with the repetitive thoughts when the mind is fairly quiet. And it doesn't really work that well unless the mind is quiet. So it's not a practice we can do all the time. And for some of us, it's actually not even so accessible. It may be something to do at a later time or in a retreat environment. But when the mind gets kind of quiet, we can watch the judgments, and then see what's happening in the body and the heart. And I'm, I'm condensing uh, what I gave in more detail last time, that I found in my own practice, when I did that, I tended over time, not immediately, to be in touch with a kind of pain that was beneath my judgments of self and other. It could be a certain, in your case, a certain sadness at being feeling a little stuck in meditation getting in touch with that, getting in touch with that pain. And in my own experience, I came to see that almost all of my judgments were a kind of defense mechanism covering over unacknowledged pain. And that when I could be in touch with the pain, it wasn't always easy, and it took time, and it took the right situation, but when I could be with that, with presence and kindness, the pain tended to be healed and the judgments tended to go away over time. This is a, you know, and it's a, we have, we carry judgments that are linked with very um, deep pain as well as more 
mild pain. The deeper pains can take a sustained period and need a lot of support and help. I just want to mention that. It's not a mad, this is not a weekend practice. Right, I think you get that. But that is a fourth way. And I want to mention just in closing a fifth way that I didn't mention last time in much depth. And this relates to the idea of doing both inner and outer work. I think that combination is really a crucial one. In the situation with my boss or in relationship, we can always do the inner work. Whatever situation we're in, the inner work is accessible. If I was in a situation with a boss where every time I tried to tell him about a problem, he said, I don't want to talk about it, and was authoritarian, and there's a wall up, sometimes that situation happens and we can't do much interpersonally. But we can always do the inner work. We can always do that. So that's, I hope, a kind of a given. That is always something we can do, even in a situation which seems hard to shift. But then we have also, in a lot of situations, we can, the judgment may tell us about a certain conflict or a certain problem. And there are ways that we could uh, try to respond to the situation as well, to try to, and this, again, is an is a involved subject, but with my boss, for example, I could try to find ways to communicate, to use language, to uh, maybe to get together with other people to try to see if I could not just do the inner work, but also try to respond to the situation. To try to, and that may or may not be successful. It's not totally in our control, right? Uh, it has to do with issues of power and so forth that are, that are sometimes um, very hard to shift. But I could try to even, what I did myself was in that situation, I tried to use language as skillfully as possible and say, as I mentioned last time, when I, if I could say when I was somewhat away from my judgment, because remember when my boss didn't listen to me, what happened was I found myself very quickly um, being reactive, judging him as a poor listener, withdrawing emotionally to a stance of what I call distanced moral superiority. Right? Remember that? <laughs> Uh, where I would just be there and say, who is this guy, blah, blah, blah. And, but there wasn't any connection and not too much communication happening. It was very, you know, all I could do from that position was just denounce him and give him ju- my own judgments back, right? That would be, if I was caught in judgments, I can't do much else. So what I could do is find some way to uh, have some space. I, what, what was key to me was actually to feel in the moment that it was painful. It's painful not to be listened to. And I could actually notice, oh, that, that, that feels wretched. Normally, I would just instantly go into my reaction. As I was able to work with more mindfulness, I could slow it down so I could actually feel that moment of pain. And that was really important. I have a friend who really skillfully does something like this. When someone says something to her that feels really bad, I, she often says, ouch. And it may seem trivial or small, but it, actually it's really key because it's saying, I have an inner experience when that happens. It's unpleasant. And in Buddhist psychology, we know that once the unpleasant experience happens, we have a very strong tendency just to push it away and go to a kind of fixed, fixated aversion. And so her saying, ouch, is this very skillful way of actually noticing what's, what's happening. For myself in the situation I mentioned, that was key. When I noticed that there was something painful, 
I could also notice that I was beginning to be judgmental and just withdraw. And I could ask myself, do I want to go there? And I could also, from that place, say, I'm not sure you heard what I said. (laughs) A little more forcefully than that. I'm not sure you heard what I said. This is a really important point for me, and I want to keep making it. You know? Uh, And he said, get out of here. (laughs) 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 Or, 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 you know, I mean, you know, you have other things could happen. (laughs) It might get fired, but uh, you have to know your situation. (laughs) But it was basically the, the key aspect was from an inner point of view, I was ready to respond rather than just react. And I could try to use language skillfully in that situation. There are whole sets of tools like nonviolent communication and a lot of skillful guidelines for using speech wisely that come into play here. But that can really only happen if if we're not just totally caught in the reaction ourselves. I brought all these quotations, none of which I've used. So let me see if there's a nice. I want to end and see, let me see if there's a nice one to end. Uh, I think this work with uh, judgments it essentially frees us from a kind of, or gradually frees us from being locked into our reactions. I think it permits us to act wisely and compassionately, and when we we do it, it's hard work. It takes time but it can take us very deeply into seeing our structures of self, uh, the forms of conditioning in ourselves and in our world. And it permits us, I think, to come more and more to respond out out of our most beautiful qualities, our openness and our wisdom and our energy. So I think I'll just close with a... Um... Um... This is a passage from Albert Camus. He said, We all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to transform them in ourselves and others. We all carry within us our places of exile, crime, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them in in the world. It is to transform them in ourselves and others. So, thank you very much. We have a little bit of time for any discussion, any questions or reflection. Please. Um, I don't know how to put this, but I'll do the best I can. So don't judge me. Um, (laughs) You're testing me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In Buddhism, um, is there a dark side? Like, I know, notice our, oh, well... I noticed I had this relationship for eight years and I split up a couple of years ago and I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is not go in, into the judgment of what he did do and go into the good places that we had. Yeah. But, and it's, and it's work, I mean, it's good. I mean, that part is fine and, and all that stuff. But I, I found myself going into the places to make him feel, look bad so I can feel better about myself. Yeah. Which, that's a judgment in itself. Yeah. And, I just realized that I can't do that, and it didn't feel good. Yeah. So I went into the compassion and everything, and 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 all this, all the things went into a good place. I mean, as far as I miss him and all this stuff in the places, the connection and all and everything. 
what we were working on, and, and it's and it's still a part of what I, we were working on, and we're not together now, but I still have this connection with yeah. you. Not, is in the Buddhist teaching the dark place? Yeah. Is there such thing in the Buddhist teaching as a dark place? Because we were working on it for like four years, his dark place, my dark place, and I found that when our dark places matched, we reacted and we pushed each other's buttons. Yeah. And he ran. And I, whatever it was that his his stuff is as a child, I know I yeah. know all his stuff yeah. is all mine. Uh, where's that? I mean, for me, I need to know. I was struggling with that dark part. Yeah. Is there a dark part of us in the Buddhist teaching? Yeah, uh, I, I a think. Shadow side, or what do you call it? Yeah, yeah. I think I got your I got your question. Okay. Um, it's a good one, and it's an important one. And actually, I talked last time about something quite similar in my own personal relationship, which I, maybe I'll just bring in in a moment. Um, yeah, some actually accuse the Buddhists of only emphasizing the dark side, <laughs> you know, the, the aversion, the suffering, and so forth. But uh, um, it, I think your question really points to the question of balance in terms of working with this really challenging material. And your impulse, it sounds like, was to work with the seeing the positive, the compassion, and so forth. That's really crucial. And it really relates to some of what I was talking about when, you know, when I was saying that that third core tool is to bring in the heart. Well, it sounds like you were doing that first, or that was a, a strong uh, part of your response. But not when I was reacting. Yeah. See, not when I was in the reaction. When, and, he, would, when he would get in his dark stuff, I'd react to his dark stuff. No, no I know. I'd get hurt. Yeah, we all, the powerful part of judgments is it actually has the potential to take us deeply into some of our quite darker areas. That's why it can go very deeply. And what we, I think, need to do is find ways to work with the the reactions and the judgments in a balanced way. It sounds like working with compassion has been part of that finding of balance for you. But there's a, a very key place for going with mindfulness and investigation into the dark areas, into, into the judgments, into the reactivity, but to go into there with tools. And what happens typically in relationships, including uh, I think every relationships, is there are just some ways that we trigger each other's reactivities and we all get lost. And sometimes we don't have any tools, we don't have any elders, we don't have any friends who can help us and we're just lost. But I had the tools and I knew what I was doing. Yeah. See, that's the thing. I have the tools, you know, and I have mm-hmm. them, and, but I couldn't help myself. It was like... This, they, were, they were very strong. Oh, God, it comes from... Chi- I know where it comes from. It comes deep in childhood, but... Yeah. I mean, you could just feel it rising. Don't keep doing it, because it's going to come up, and I noticed, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's... So, did every, everyone hear that? Did everyone hear the comments? Um, so, yeah, so... so um, did you remove yourself? I did that, too. Well, let's, let's, let's try okay. to just not deal with quite everything and because okay. you're, you're bringing up a lot okay. and and in terms of how does a person in a couple relationship deal with the mutual triggering of one's deepest and most painful territory uh, <laughs> okay uh, two minute answer <laughs> uh, but I think um, Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think some of the elements of what we explored gives at least the framework for looking at it, which is that we need to 
somehow find a way to have uh, balance in that situation. And let me, let me focus more on that part of your question. And I, I want to also give some time for other people's questions. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll be briefer than I might be if we were just talking one-on-one. Okay. Okay. Uh, but let's focus on that question about, is there a place for looking at the dark material? Because that's, in a way, is a little more approachable in a short time than the thing of how do we, what do we do when we're triggering each other with childhood stuff that's, you know, related to fixed ways that each of us have been for 40 years or 50 years. Okay. Um, but so there's a place for working with the dark material, and the general guideline is to try to work with the with when there's with balance. When there's not balance, it's usually helpful not to just stay there, but to go seek more balance. And that's partly an answer to your, as it were, more challenging question. And to find the resources to do that. So it doesn't help much to just stay in a lost situation when we're continuing to react. So and one of the ways to look at it is to ask yourself, what would I do in formal meditation when the same situation comes up? Because often it's a simplified situation where we can actually get an answer that's relevant for a more complicated situation. In individual meditation, if I'm kind of feeling really unbalanced, I don't just stay there, but I try to find that balance. And I might do it in different ways. I might do it by bringing in more of the heart, compassion, forgiveness. I might do it just by changing the energy, taking a walk. You know, I might do it by um, just not going into a certain territory for a while and so forth. And so we can, we can really work with the dark material. And it's, I think actually Buddhist practice gives some of the best tools and understandings for do that. There's a very sophisticated psychology of how this all works, which can really outline the process in quite a lot of detail. So um, I think as we work with that, but the, 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 the tools that I suggested in terms of those four and then the fifth general method are, I think they're all purpose tools that would help with the more profound question of dealing with one's deepest, hardest stuff. It's hard enough to do it by oneself. To do it when you're in an, you know, a relationship is harder. So that's a short, a short beginning of a response. Yeah, thanks. Please, yeah. That's an interesting question. Did everyone hear? No. It's a question, and I'll, I'll state it in a briefer way, but whether 
you know, whether as it were, I'll, I'll rephrase a little bit, like if, because there's, there's kind of an ongoing dialogue happening a lot now between people doing research on the brain and people doing Buddhist practice. And the question was, to, from the standpoint of Buddhist practice, what could we say about the research that shows that judgments, for example, may be, uh, may be linked with certain, let's say, neural pathways being elicited, certain chemicals being coming out in the brain, and so forth. And uh, it's actually a really interesting question. Is that, is that enough? Is that fair enough? Fair enough to go on? Um, it's actually pretty interesting. It can relate to some of the things that, that um, I was pointing to. Um, because in a way, that, and it really relates to your question too, that when we are lost in something, we're basically uh, giving strength to the old pattern. You know, as it were, we're strengthening the old neural pattern. And that's not so helpful to do. That's why it's good to try to find balance to, to not just stay there. But the interesting thing is, is that uh, a number of the tools that we have to work with judgments, in a way, shift the way the brain works. And one of the, I think, major findings of brain research is that there's way more what's called plasticity in the brain than was thought 20 years ago or 30 years ago. In other words, brains can be trained or entrained. <laughs> you know, that we can, that we can, uh, that our conditioning is not our fate, basically. And and interestingly, I think part of that uh, retraining of the brain, mindfulness, is in part a retraining of the brain. When I can be with a judgment, with mindfulness, I think something else is happening neuro, uh, neurologically. And also very interesting, and this relates to the comment about compassion in the heart, when we do loving-kindness practice, or compassion practice, or what I was pointing to by the idea of kind of being in a new way, we could say that those are linked with different neural pathways. And that a key part of working with judgment is to strengthen, as it were, alternative neural pathways to work with a similar situation. And to, and you know, those of us who've done particularly longer meditation retreats, actually it feels from the inside like the brain's being shifted into the neural pathways, new, new neural pathways when I, I know two years ago when I did metta for five weeks in a row, repeating metta phrases 18 hours a day for five weeks, <laughs> you know, my brain, it felt like, yes, this is, there's some different things happening, you know, uh, than happen, you know, when I read the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> and, and so, but it's helpful to think about that because it really points to the importance for doing this judgment work of giving sufficient time for, as it were, new patterns to develop. From a psychological point of view, it would be to let the new ways of responding have some training, have some, you know, and again, it can be interesting. I'll just say one more thing from my perspective. I mentioned a little bit last time. In my own work with judgments, it's been very interesting to link the judgments with their bodily or somatic manifestations. And so I have found just very simple practices like noticing my judgments are connected with, okay, I get a little more contracted. My shoulders or my body does a certain thing. And I, you know, my hands do a certain thing. I noticed in looking at this that when I'm more tense, my hands are like this. They're a little bit gripping each other. And that 
I found that through the tool of mindfulness, I could simply see when that was happening and find, um, and again, finding through exploration, what is a different way of holding my hands that expresses a different way of being? And I found that simply making a very small movement, and this is links to a lot of the uh, body disciplines like Feldenkrais and others, that making very small and subtle body movements, like for me it was going from this just to going like this and having my hands open and relaxed, very small movement that I can do right in a meeting. I think those shifts in body posture actually elicit a different neural patterns. And uh, it's very, very interesting. And so it really, put, again, this is one of the areas we could look at another time in more depth, but I think there's a whole way that there are bodily manifestations of judgments that often can give us clues as to when the judgments are there. And sometimes it's like Thich Nhat Hanh says, simply notice when you're meditating whether you're smiling or not and have a half smile. <laughs> have a half smile. <laughs> that was a funny half smile. And or a whole smile. And, and that shifts, I think that shifts the brain somewhat. It's interesting. There's, there are tie-ins with how our bodies are, with the brain, with these patterns. But we're basically, in doing this transformative work, we're shifting a whole pattern that's been around for a very long time. And I think, it, and I think if we tested our brain ways, we'd find that actually uh, we were uh, acting in a different way. Does that make some sense? Another, another doorway. Yeah, another doorway into it. Maybe the last comment, and then we're, because we're, we're, at, we're at time. I'll try to make it brief, but I've, I've just been reading a book by a psychiatrist from UCLA called Brainwork about yeah. um, he's playing with Mahasi's style guy, I guess, yeah. in that yeah. kind of mindfulness technique and how to help people um, with obsessive compulsive behavior. Yeah. It's just fascinating. It's just so kind of basic and simple. But it's just what you're talking about. When he's actually taking photographs of the brain before and after the treatment, and there's a significant difference. So just exactly. Yeah, it's very similar. And Sylvia was telling me about a book. Uh, I think it's in the bookstore. Something Some of you may know the exact title, but it has in the title something about training your brain. Yeah. Does anyone? What's it called? Uh, something like that. Like something. That. Anyone know the exact title? But it's, I think it's in the bookstore. There was a whole book, and Sylvia was reading it and saying it's really interesting because she, you know, she was at the retreat in early January with, uh, with neuroscientists who were studying mindfulness. There was a seven-day retreat in which neuroscientists did mindfulness practice for one week and um, compared notes. She said they were really ardent meditators. <laughs> they didn't mess around and, you know go take breaks a lot. They just, <laughs> and they came with their notepads and their files and they were really, they were really into it. So, Ruth, do you have a short one just to finish? Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. I've worked since 1999 with Vietnamese people and their whole society is yeah. based on loving kindness. Yeah. And they have one way of dealing with judgment and it's a little head movement and it's just sort of, and it's, it's just like sideways head movement. You, you make a comment and they, I know they're, they're trying not to judge. They yeah. just go, <laughs> that, that, it's a, that really changes everything. It's a little bit like my little hand yes, movement. Exactly. That room, yeah. The whole society does it. Yeah. The whole of the country. <laughs> and so, that country is, is really loving kindness.
and it's compassionate. Yeah, yeah, and which brings us also to the cultural piece of the judgments. So, um, so let's research in the next week. If anyone wants to come back, we can all develop our collective movement and go out into the world and just go <laughs> like that or whatever. But uh, re- look into that yourself. See if you, I mean, if some of that inspired you, see if you can notice the bodily or somatic dimension of your judgments. It's very, very interesting, isn't it? And study it and see if there, you know, what I'm, again, I want to say that this is a deep area and what I'm reporting in my terms of my own experience, you know, in half an hour, I'm really reporting 10 or 15 years of sustained work. So it's not, don't think you should just get it together in the next week or two. It takes time, but it is really doable. And as I, I think I, um, as I've seen many times, uh, it's possible with this work to really shift conditioning that has been prevalent and around most of the time for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years with, with the sustained work. It really is possible to shift. Okay, one sentence. There's a philosopher, Paul Tillich, who talks about worldviews when your mind goes tilt. Yeah. And when she said that, I thought, my goodness, that's a tie-in that I would never Yeah. 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 So we can continue with other connections next week. Uh, let's just sit for about 30 seconds or a minute and we'll and then we'll close. I should say that uh, please continue this work and we can in our informal time next week we can continue to talk. We could talk about judgments during the informal time for the next few weeks or years, if, if you wish. So, uh, but please continue the practice, uh, even if it won't be the direct theme of a given, uh, given day. Let's just sit then quietly for a little bit. Inviting what may have been helpful and inviting also any intentions coming out of the morning. Remembering that we do this practice uh, not just for ourselves but also for others. We offer the fruits of our time together, the fruits of our practice both uh, by ourselves and with uh, the larger community. We offer those fruits outwardly for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. Thank you very much. Till next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.